the explosive new film, Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost, exposes secrets behind the government's takedown of General Michael Flynn. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. He told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. They had to get rid of Flynn. Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to SalemNow.com. SalemNow.com. Hey, friends, welcome back to The Common Good, AM 1160, Hope for Your Life. Alongside Aubrey Sampson, my name is Brian Fromm. So glad to have you with us today. Uh, Aubrey, we've said this often on the show. You and I are both pastors. Yes. Uh, You are at Renewal Church in West Chicago. I'm at Four Corners Community Church in Darien. Uh, And with that in mind, something I ran a membership class this past week, which was a ton of fun because we haven't done membership classes during COVID. Like we've, my thing is like, I don't want to do membership through, through Zoom. So trying to hold it. And so it was a ton of fun to get a group of people together, talk about the church. You know, anything where there's forward momentum right now feels really good. It's so refreshing and like, okay, okay, we're, we're doing what we're supposed to be doing. Yeah. Yep. Yep. And so one of the things we talk about, we talk about the history of the church, where did we come from, all this kind of stuff. Uh, but one of the things we talk about is the mission of the mm. church. And I think every church has a mission statement, you know, yes. and, and they're generally the same. Ours is uh, we exist to help people find and follow Jesus, right? It's kind nice. of this idea, right? What's the mission statement of renewal? We exist to make disciples who make disciples for the glory of God and the good of the neighborhood. There you go. Oh, I like that. Good of the neighborhood. I like yeah, that. That's good. Thanks. Every now and then I hear other people's mission statements. I'm like, oh, got to steal that part. That's ooh, a good one. That's that. a good one. Yep. Yep. But let's talk more broadly, Aubrey, because we talked about mission with the membership class and it was kind of fun. What, what are, what's the purpose of the church? What's the mission? Cool. How would you define Big C Church? What is the mission of the yeah. Big C Church? Yes, I, this is great because I, I let's see if I can remember my grad school work because one of my one of my major uh, questions in my comp exam was that very question: What wow. is the mission of the church? Um, I, you know, obviously it's making disciples, right? Baptizing right. In the name of the Father, Son, Holy Spirit. Secondly, I think it's partnering with God on on God's mission for the world, which is making this world into a garden like place where other people can flourish, and that's all. Uh, you know, through and for and in the name of Jesus. And Mm. then it's, um, again, part of making discipleship is seeing people come under the lordship and supremacy of Jesus Christ. That's good. That's good. And so uh, the the church, I think one of the main points also is that the church has a mission, right? And sometimes... Yes, we have uh, a missionary God who calls us on as missionary people. Yes. Correct. And then we gather together and then we are sent out and there's that kind of feel to it. So one of the people, one of the theologians, one of the people who talks most often and most passionately about the mission of the church is Mike Frost. Yes, he does. And so over at Church Leaders, I saw this as I was thinking about mission. He wrote this five cultural trends killing the mission of the church. And uh, Mike Frost can tend to be very um, what's the word I'm looking for? He can he can poke the bear. Right. He's he's a prophet. He's a modern day prophet. He's not afraid of speaking truth to culture and power. And the word I was looking for was provocative, right? He can really get you going. So he has said, and I'd love to know what you think of these. He has said, here are five things uh, culturally, trends within our culture that are, he says, not just hurting the mission of the church, but killing Mm -hmm. the mission of the church. So I want to go through these five and see just if we agree with them and talk about what what, uh, effect are these things having on the mission of the church. Number one, we're going to start off big because you and I talk about this one all the time. I think about our conversation with David French yesterday. Uh, Number one, the death of civil discourse impacts Mm. the mission of the church. Talk to me about that one. (laughs) This is something that we talk about all the time, Brian, and the death of of how did he say it? Civil, Civil discourse. discourse. Yeah. yeah. I mean, I think the reality why it's killing the mission of the church is this becomes such a distraction. Like yeah. all we're doing is arguing our little pet arguments and uh, trying to convince the other that they're wrong and we're right. You, I think we talked recently about somebody who posted something on social media about what he called quote unquote progressive Christians. And it was yeah. just literally the whole, the basis for it was like, they're wrong. I'm right. And I feel Mm. like that's what's happening. There's so much polarization. We're arguing over politics. We're arguing over 
of course, you know, COVID regulations, et cetera. And then on top of that, some of us are arguing over theology and, and missiology and ecclesiology. And it's all of that to say is we just aren't moving forward, making disciples who make disciples. Like it's just, we're getting caught up in these arguments and we're getting caught up in rhetoric instead mm. of remembering what our mission is and, and moving forward. And it's important to discuss. It's important to have nuance. It's important to like disagree with care. So I'm not saying that, but I think Mike Frost is right in that it has now become such a distraction. The world is watching that we've lost the capacity to, um, We've lost the capacity to disagree in a way that honors the name of Jesus. That's good. That's good. And Frost goes on to say that basically the lack of civil discourse, exactly how you've described, also uh, makes us take go towards uniformity. All right. We all have to think the same thing. Those and now we're just chambers. fighting. Yeah, correct. Yeah. Correct. All right. Number two, I told you he's provocative. So this is going to be it. Number two, he says the cost of health care impacts yeah. the mission of the church. Wow. So he's, his point being uh, this, that because healthcare costs are so high for some people mm -hmm. uh, that pastors and lay leaders and others have to focus so much on getting other jobs, being yeah. bivocational, uh, not for the mission of the church, but to pay their healthcare bills yeah. and to pay their deductibles. Uh, you're going to talk about this later. I, I think, am going to talk about this later. That's exactly right. Uh, number three, he says, the demand for excellence mm. impacts the mission of the church. He just asks, mm. asks the question, who told us excellence should be our core value? It's not mm. found in the New Testament. What do you think about that one? Yeah, I mean, I, I might. OK, I hear what he's saying. I might disagree in that we're, we are called to do everything we do unto the Lord. And so I think that's where that excellence piece comes from. Like we're not going to do it half-heartedly, but I think what has happened is excellence has morphed into like either perfectionism or performance. And so what we mean when we're saying excellence is not just like you're doing things with integrity as if you're doing them unto God. It means we're doing, it needs to be professional. Yes, it right. needs to be polished. It needs to be shiny and pretty and sexy or else it's not a successful church. And I think mm -hmm. that's where he's got, that's where he's right. Like, yep. I think it's okay for us to strive towards excellence as, as church leaders and church practitioners, but unto the Lord, not unto our own names. Yep, that's well put. Number four, he says, uh, let me read number four and number five. He says, okay. number four, the end of volunteerism impacts the mission of the church. That's mm -hmm. a huge one. Mm -hmm. uh, and then number five, he says, the burden of regulation impacts the church. He says society has shifted in a way that requires education providers, community groups, and businesses to have much stricter rec regulations on all sorts of things. And that mm -hmm. administrative burden is killing smaller churches. So either of those last two, regulation mm -hmm. and volunteerism, give me, give me just a couple seconds on them. Yeah, I, I, I'm going to just go with the last one because I actually don't think he's right. I, uh, I, act I actually do think I guess I'm thinking specifically of the safety of the staff, sexual harassment policies, child protection. We need better regulation. So mm. I'm not exactly sure. I, I don't think I understand his point here. Like if we haven't, when we have not had good regulation around those things, it has only benefited sinful, broken, corrupt men in power. And mm. so I, maybe I'm misunderstanding what he's saying, but I, I actually think these regulations are important for the vulnerable people in our churches um, but I don't know, Brian, am I, am I misunderstanding what he means? By no, that? I think, I think you're right. I think he's saying the burden of it, like the, so the small church, he talks about the small church of a hundred or less who's having to try to figure out all these administrative things. It's probably a bit overstated, but I think the answer is not less regulation. The answer is probably more help on it. Yeah, <laughs> and there more, you go. There you go. That makes ways. sense. Okay. And yeah. that volunteerism yeah. one is a big one. I found this in my church, right? People are just busy and they have less yeah. kind of. Uh, yeah, uh, they have less a bit or they have less desire to give of their time. And totally. sometimes we can bemoan that. But we have to think that through. The major point here is that the church has a mission and there are cultural winds working against it that we uh, we really need to wrestle with. Well, coming up next, Matt Saman, author of The Leftovers, Baylor, Betrayal and Beyond. We're excited to talk to Matt next year on The Common Good. AM 1160. Hope for your life. Hey, 
Hey, friends, welcome back to The Common Good here on AM 1160, Hope for Your Life, alongside Aubrey Sampson. My name is Brian Fromm, and Aubrey and I are thrilled to be joined by the author of a new book called The Leftovers, Baylor, Betrayal, and Beyond. His name is Matt Seaman. Matt, how are you doing today? I'm great. Thank you so much for having me on. Oh, it's absolutely our pleasure. And now with March Madness coming and stuff, it is a perfect time to talk about your book, The Leftovers. And Matt, let's start here. Why don't you tell us a little bit about the experience, kind of your story that led you to write this book? Going into my senior year at Baylor, it was 2003. It was that summer. And our team was about to be really good. Mm. We had some older players like myself that were role players that were going to lead well. And we had some younger players that were going to be NBA, future NBA stars. And this dream that I had had since I was nine years old of playing on a championship team, making it to March Madness myself, it really looked like it was coming true. Uh, I played at a university that I loved for a coach that I loved. And I got a call from a professor on a Friday afternoon. And he said, Matt, what's going on with your team? And I kind of blew it off at first because, you know, over the years you play with some knuckleheads and some guys (laughs) that that do some things wrong. And he said, no, you need to turn on the news right now. He said, they're they're saying that there's been a a, a murder and possible basketball players, you know, could be responsible. Well, that's just that's not a call that you ever anticipate or you're ready for. And over the course of that summer. Uh, found out that one of my teammates had shot and killed one of my other teammates. Oh. And and the coaching staff that I played almost 100 games for, you know, learned that they had done a lot of things wrong. And so this kind of perfect world that I thought I was living in, you know, realized that, man, it's far from that. That is unbelievable. I'm a little bit speechless, Matt, about how to even respond <laughs> to that. Um So obviously, there's a lot more to that story here. You're part of this team, this big, I mean, I don't even know if I want to call it a scandal, but this big horrific thing happened. What did you do with all of the pain brought on from that situation? That's a good question. It was. It was a tragedy first because of what happened to one of my teammates, you know, and and, and the uh, the other guy that was involved with it too. And, And then the scandal of just how our program fell apart and all the sanctions that came on. Well, I realized that in that moment when things were really tough, uh, I instead of running to God, I, I ran away. Mm-hmm. I ran from him. And I, I'd grown up in a Christian home and I had a ton of head knowledge. But I think you realize sometimes that, you know, open up your chest. Who's really in control or what is in control? And mm-hmm. it was basketball for me. When basketball fell apart, uh, I did not. Uh, rely on on my faith or these principles that I had grown up uh, with. I actually ran to the party scene. And so for the first time in my life, I, I just basically took control of my happiness, of my peace and and, and realized or said, if God, if you're not going to make sure that my dreams, almost like a genie, if you're not going to make my dreams come true the way that I've, we, I thought you wanted them to, well, then I'm, I'm in control of this thing now. And I never knew or I couldn't have guessed at the time, you know, how far away that would take me. Mm. Yeah. And and Matt, talk to us about kind of the aftermath. So, you know, you've got the weeks after and you're, you know, the season kind of crumbles the basketball. I do remember this story and it being so shocking, but talk to us about like kind of the next decade of your life. Like what was the results, not just the aftermath of that, but then uh, kind of talk to us about where your, where your life ended up going. Yeah. That, that, Senior year was really hard, and we only had six scholarship players, and that's where the title of the leftovers uh, of the book comes from, is, is we were left over from this situation that we didn't cause. I think a lot of people sometimes find themselves in that situation of, man, I, I don't think I really did anything wrong here, but I am really paying the penalty or, or the con- I'm having these consequences from other people. And, mm-hmm. and we were losing a lot of games that year that we shouldn't have. There's a moment in the season I, I, I wasn't able to really be on board with what Coach Drew, uh, who is still there, uh, what it was his first year. He was 32 years old. I was having a hard time believing him and getting on board with his vision for the program. And but there is a moment within that season that we, as a team, we do bond together. We start to believe in our coach. We start to basically 
every night was our championship. And we tried to do things that nobody thought we could do, which was one, even be competitive, let alone, you know, win a game. Mm-hmm. And we ended up, we ended up, we were eight and 21, but it was the most successful basketball season that I'd ever been a part of. Wow. And, and you, you know, you, we redefined success a little bit that year to mean giving your very, very best, uh, even in the midst of uh, incredible adversity. Well, the lie that I told myself was that, okay, basketball is bad right now. Mm. So I'm going to find peace and happiness anywhere I can. But when basketball gets right again, those I'll let those habits go. Hmm. Well, hmm. after that season, I went and played in Iceland for one year. It's the only place in the world that would would uh, allow me to play pro basketball there. Wow. And so wow. my, my, my very first practice there, uh, I, a teammate said, where'd you play? And I said, Baylor. And, he's, and I saw his eyes dart around and, and he said, you know, don't, or he asked the question in broken English, don't they kill people there? And so this, this story that I was a part of followed me all the way uh, across the, the world. And so did my habits. Uh, the, you asked about the next, next decade. Well, uh, nine years of anger, resentment, uh, a lot of bitterness, uh, self, uh, I mean, self pity and, mm. and really the just continuing to live life the way that I wanted and not worrying at all about the consequences or how I treated other people. And it was my 30th birthday when, uh, I basically asked the question, you know, is this really, is this really what life is supposed to be, to mm. be like? And, and if, I mean, I know a lot of this content is probably in your book and so we don't want to spoil anything, Matt, but you know, I, I, I don't want to miss that because you, you said earlier you turned to partying and drinking. Now, obviously you're talking about, wow, you spent the next decade running after the wrong things. At what point did the Lord begin to kind of get a hold of your life and did you see things start to change? Well, there, yeah, there was a, some desperation, uh, thir- my 30th birthday, I'm alone in my apartment. I had already started coaching at the high school level uh, at that point. And, you know, I've, I've often apologized to some of those players that I coached early on in those years because I, I was an angry person. And I mm-hmm. think it bled over into how I coach. And I, was, mm-hmm. and I wasn't really I wasn't much like Scott Drew uh, when I coached at that point. And and um uh, there's just the moment of desperation of, is this really, I mean, as a young kid and, and, and knowing the promises of God and, and trying to live a more morally good life, is this really where I'm supposed to be? And uh, uh, the next Sunday I went to a church that I, I didn't attend and I didn't really attend much church at that point, but I, I never been there. And I sat in the back and I listened to a message that I thought I'd heard a thousand times. And I filled out a visitor card. And, and you know, th- those of you that, that grow up going to church, you never fill out that visitor card because you're never a visitor. And, and but I filled it out and I said, I'm angry and I have questions. And, and the, the kind of the story of how I got with that pastor and what God's done in my life at that point was is, is to me pretty incredible. Yeah. Yeah. And, and Matt, this is such a great story. And I need to encourage people to go get your book, The Leftovers. There's there's so much more detail in there to the story. But I would love as we close and thanks for spending some time with us with like the last minute or two that we have. What would you say to the person right now who's listening, who feels like their life is at rock bottom? They don't really know which way is up. Could you provide kind of some hope for that person? Oh, I love that question. Um, first of all, give up control. Hmm. So many times, so many times, I, I didn't realize that when I was 21 years old and, you know, looking back there, there's probably some slippage even before that starting to blur the lines a little bit of what I know is right and what I should be doing and what's what's, you know, conscious, those conscious sins that I that I was starting to engage in, you know, then then when everything fell apart, I, I just completely ran over to that side. But I gave, I took control of my life, but I didn't realize how much I really lost it. And I think that's the lie is don't don't become a believer because you'll have to follow all these rules and you mm-hmm. won't be able to have fun and do these things. Yeah. Taking control of your life like that, you end up just being miserable and making bad choices. The most freedom that I've ever had in my life is when I surrendered to him as a 30 year old. And I, I, that's would be my my advice would be to run to him, mm-hmm. get in the word and spend time daily and so that you're not 
a person like me that's wondering, poor me, why is this happening when I'm the cause of it? I'm the yeah. reason this is happening. That's a good word. And Matt Saman, again, uh, he is the author of a new book called The Leftovers, Baylor, Betrayal and Beyond. We'd encourage you to go pick it up. Also the host of the Jamodi podcast, which stands for Just a Matter of Doing It, uh, J-A-M-O-D-I. We'd encourage you to go get that. You can follow Matt at Matt underscore Saman. Matt, we can't let you go before asking, can Baylor repeat this year in 30 seconds? Can you guys repeat this year? Absolutely. Here's the reason why uh, they have, they still have Scott <laughs> Drew. They still have the culture of joy and we've had so many injuries. We're getting healthy again. Uh, I think they're going to be dangerous come tournament time. We're all going to be watching. We know who you're picking in your bracket. Right. But we want to check it out again. Go pick up the book, The Leftovers, Baylor, Betrayal and Beyond. Matt, thanks so much. This has been great. Thank you, guys. Absolutely. You're listening to The Common Good on AIM 1160. Hope for your life. Hey, friends. Welcome back to The Common Good, AM 1160, Hope for Your Life. Alongside Aubrey Sampson, my name is Brian Fromm. So glad to have you with us on this Tuesday afternoon. All right, Aubrey, uh, you and I have both been married separately for a number of years. My wife and I, my wife Carrie and I have been married 22 years. You and Kevin have been married 21, I believe. That's right. Uh, and so I only know that because I've, I've put in my mind that you are a year behind yep. me in age, in marriage, in school graduation, in everything. Wait, in the, oh, I was hoping it was the common good too, but it was actually two years behind That's two you. Years, yes, we'll, just yes. pretend, we'll pretend like it was a year behind you. So basically, you just need to watch my life and everything I do, good and bad, a year I'll, later I'll, for you. I'll follow you as you follow Jesus, right? That's it. That's it. So uh, we've both been married for a good amount of years now, which is the weird part, because don't you sometimes still feel like a newlywed? Mm-hmm. I mean, which like, probably sounds weird old. to people. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> It probably sounds weird to people because we're always constantly talking like I have an 18 year old, you have yeah. a 16 year old, like, but in some ways you're like, I'm still figuring this marriage out. And at the Atlantic, they wrote something really, I think, important. And it's interesting because while it's, it's towards marriage and family, these are not, this is not a Christian organization. Yeah. The title of the article written by Joshua Coleman is this, the key to escaping the couple envy trap. Hmm. And then he says, remember that even the partnerships you admire have periods of boredom, burden, or dissatisfaction. Hmm. And so he gets into it in the article. But Aubrey, uh, I've said this to you before, but oftentimes one, one of the fun things as a pastor you get to do is premarital counseling yep. and to kind of prepare marriages, uh, husbands and wives to get married and one of the things that I try to make a point of in premarital is to tell people, listen, the whole Disney idea that it's going to be happy, <laughs> happily ever after is not it. But instead, uh, the honeymoon is going to be awesome. Then the honeymoon period of early marriage is wonderful. But there's coming a day where it becomes just life. Yeah, right. And, yeah, and yeah. he uses the words boredom, burden, and dissatisfaction yeah. that every marriage, every one of them is going to have periods of boredom, yep. of burden, of dissatisfaction. Yep. I find that freeing, don't you? I'm, some people might be listening and going, well, that's depressing. I actually think that's encouraging. Yeah, I think for people on the other side of marriage uh, who've been in it for a while, that's actually a really encouraging word because it's a very free and true word. I think for young couples just starting out a marriage, that can feel so defeating. It's interesting you say this though, Brian, because we we were actually just doing premarital on Saturday with a couple, and they are so precious, and they're so in love, and you know probably like you, we have a tool that we use for uh, premarital mm-hmm. counseling, and they filled out a form, and everything was like. I have zero problem with my partner. Everything (laughs) new I learn about my partner, I love without question. And Kevin and I were like laughing about it a little bit and not trying to demean them, but like, you guys, this is so precious. And we want you to go into marriage being madly in love, but it will not always feel this way. Mm -hmm. And that's okay. Like that's part of the invitation of marriage. What we don't want you to do is be shocked the moment you do find out something new about your partner that you're not super excited about. Like you need to be prepared for the fact that just like everything else in life, marriage has its ups and downs and that's okay. And that's even good Because as you can move through those seasons of dissatisfaction or boredom or surprise or what have you, you find greater intimacy, greater friendship, greater joy. But like you can't let those 
you can't let the rocky times rock everything, right? Yeah. Like you can't throw the baby out with the bathwater. But I, I, it is so all that to say, yes, it's freeing to know this is just a reality of marriage. Like you have seasons that are harder than others. Yeah. yeah. And that's not bad. That's actually part of the good, good work of marriage. Yeah. Yeah. That's, I just love that you called them precious. <laughs> they, they were, I mean, it was hard. It was a little hard not to be like, oh, you poor, you poor guys. You don't even know. Like, you don't want to be cynical, right? But you also want to be like, just, it's, a, it, it, don't be surprised when things change a little bit. Yeah. That's an opportunity to really love each other at that yeah. point. And we laugh at that because that's where we, I got married young. You got married yeah, young. Yeah. And I remember being in premarital counseling, telling the premarital counselor, we've never fought. Carrie and I've <laughs> never fought. And Aubrey, our first fight was the three days after we got back from our honeymoon and it was over oh. dumb stuff. And oh, so funny, funny. that's what marriage is. Now, the point yep. of this article is the danger within our marriages of comparing mm. ourselves to other marriages. Wow. Talked about that. Where's the, where's, what do you think the danger in comparing? Comparison is and what is the result it has on our relationships? Yeah, I mean, I think, you know, there's always a danger in comparison, comparing yourself to other people, period. Okay, mm -hmm. so we know the dangers in that. And those are those are the same for marriage. Like one, you begin to think someone else has it better than you. And then that in time begins to uh, allow the enemy to get in and tell you some lies about your marriage that may begin to convince you that it's time to end your marriage or stray from your marriage or cheat on your spouse because you're looking for what so-and-so has. It also, I think, is just a lie about what marriage is because mm -hmm. we think that so-and-so has this wonderful couple or wonderful couplehood and everything's fabulous and easy. There's no way that's true. Mm. If they don't have any conflict in their marriage, they probably actually don't have a healthy marriage, right? right. And so I, I I just think we have to be really, really careful not to not to look on someone else's marriage and assume that that makes ours bad and vice versa. Like, I don't think we need to be looking at couples that are hurting and struggling and be like, Oh, ours is a lot better than them. Like you almost, this is one of those things where you have to stay in your own lane mm. and, and be thankful for the person God has given you and do the work in your own marriage. Again, we've talked about this before. Like the grass is greener where you water it. The grass is not greener on the other side. Now, certainly this is outside of, and I feel like we always need to say this. If you're in an unhealthy, abusive, toxic marriage and you see another marriage that's healthy and showing you something that you want to have, that's okay. Like if there's a, a couple that's older than you and you want to try to be like them, I think it's good for us to have models and to strive towards something or to realize like, oh, wow, our marriage is not healthy. Our marriage is toxic. We need some major help or something mm. needs a change or I need to leave. But what we're talking about here is comparing like romantic relationships, right? And you just can't, your relationship is yours and you do the work in yours not to try to compare yourself to other people. That's well put. And here's the deal, especially in the social media world that we live in, because it's, it's dangerous as an individual to compare myself to others because- I can look at social media and look at a couple friend of ours and like all I see is out on a date tonight, right? Mm. Like we're all dressed up and doing this. Yeah. Or hey, we just ran off to for a for a anniversary weekend to here and you're like, I don't know, we're reheating food and just kind of lounging on the couch right, right now. Right. What's wrong with our well, of course you're just getting the best of their stuff anyway. But also when when it's about some bar that other people have said, and this can work the other way is by like surrounding ourselves with really bad marriages and going, mm. Man, ours is great. I love your line there. What are the grass where you are as yeah. opposed to the grass is always greener on the other yeah. side. Marriage is a roller coaster. There are going to be ups and downs, but I think the ups, the ups and the downs is what makes it beautiful yeah. uh, and what makes it worth going. So a good article over there, the Atlantic, I'd encourage you to go check it out. We're glad that you're joining us today. Stay with us. We got lots to talk about coming up. We're going to talk about top 10 relationship killers to avoid. And then we're going to hear again from SOS International. You're listening to The Common Good. AM 1160, hope for your life. Hey, everybody. Welcome back to The Common Good. My name is Aubrey Sampson alongside my co-host, Brian Fromm. We're so glad that you're with us on this Tuesday evening. Brian, you and I just spent some time talking about marriage and kind of avoiding the couple envy trap. That's right. In light of marriage, there was a, a different article at relevantmagazine.com about uh, top 10 relationship killers. 
and how to avoid them. And I would say envy that we just talked about is one of those. Mm. Before even looking at the article, do you and I mean, I hope this is okay. We're going to dive into our marriages, honestly, here for our listeners. Is there a relationship killer for you and Carrie, like something you guys are prone to that you have to fight against? Yeah, well, it's been years where we'll have this conversation. It's rarely we're not the most heated people, right? Mm -hmm, Like, mm -hmm. so it's not like these passionate arguments or whatever else. It will be apathy is the wrong word, but oftentimes you'll understand it this way. We characterize it by saying to each other, I feel like we're living as roommates right Mm, now. Yeah. And that's our way of saying that we're in a season of not really prioritizing our relationship at all. It's all about the kids or it's all about work. And obviously those are all important. Yeah. But where you kind of crawl into bed at night, kind of like, yeah, I don't feel like I've connected with you in days. You know, Mm -hmm. I don't feel like we've talked at all. Uh, Mm -hmm. Not because I'm mad at you, not because anything's wrong. It's just... Uh, and you're going to go through seasons, but usually for us, when we use that phrase with each other, I feel like we're just roommates. That is a red flag for, yeah. okay, we need to go on a date. We need That's to good. go for a walk. We That's need good. to stay up and talk or whatever else it yeah. might be and just connect. So that's kind of where we will. That's a that's the one that we'll fall into on the, on a regular basis. So what about yeah. you and Kevin? Yeah, I was thinking um, – we probably one that's similar, but just may play out differently is when we, um, uh, for instance, we will come home from work and like every human be so exhausted after dinner, I will turn on the TV to veg out and Kevin will go on his phone to play a game. And mm-hmm. then we'll have spent the whole evening not talking to each other. And so similarly, we'll, we'll both be like, oh, okay, we need a date night. We need to reset. We need to like, just do something to try to connect with with one other. I would say in years past, because Kevin and I are both pretty passionate people, our communication style was, uh, our arguments were not that beautiful, but because of the marriage counseling that we have put in, we have both learned a lot healthier conflict. And so (laughs) I'm grateful that like that is no longer the relationship killer that it used to be. Well, um, again, over at Relevant Magazine, an article by Deborah Faleda. She's been on the show before, actually. Yeah. yeah, she's a relationship expert. And so these are some of the, the her top 10 relationship killers. Number one is prioritizing your biological family over your relationship. Mm. And I, this one was I was surprised to see this on the list. But I I don't think she's actually talking about kids. She's talking about no. like parents, in-laws. Yes. Sister, like prioritizing their needs over the needs of your marriage. And I that kind of hit me hard. Like, wow, I wonder when I have done that in our marriage. Yeah, it's, uh, you know, the biblical picture of marriage is you're leaving your biological yeah. family. Leave and, and cleave. That's right. But you that doesn't mean you're turning your back on your family. Yeah. But, yeah. Um, you know, I think the 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 cringeworthy comedy around this is that old show, Everybody Loves Raymond, right? Mm, it's that idea of yeah. having a... Uh, parents or having siblings that are so still embedded in your life and your family that it causes relationship, you know, and I think a good, a good window into this is when holidays roll around. Are you yeah. like, no, this is what my family does. We get together. Well, no, you have a new family now and you have to have those discussions. So no, uh, I don't feel like this is a big one in my relationship, but which is interesting to say because I live n- literally next door to my yeah, parents. Yeah, that's but, funny. That's funny. Um, and Carrie's family is all around us as well. But I feel like we've set up the boundaries we need to, but I have certainly seen this be a big problem, especially in young marriages. Yeah, absolutely. Where, you know, you go from being in college and I go home for every holiday and this, and then boom, I'm all of a sudden in this marriage. What yeah. do we do with families? No, I've seen this for sure. Yeah, yeah. This is one to be very careful about. All right, let me just quickly read the rest of the list, Brian, and then we'll take a couple to talk about. Number two, we just talked about this earlier, failing to take time for intentional communication. That's right. Three, taking life stress out on each other. Four, succumbing to social media addiction. That's basically what I was saying with me and Kevin. It's either (laughs) the phone or TV, right? Five, refusing to put the other person first. Six, harboring a grudge. Seven, forgetting to set healthy boundaries. Eight, holding on to the past. Nine, tolerating little lies. 10 letting pride creep in do any mm. of those stand out to you no i i don't i don't worry i don't struggle with any <laughs> <laughs> never never dealt with this at all so let me let me point out a couple of them i already told you number two is kind of a, a yeah. big one in our relationship yeah. failing to take intentional communication like intentionally going we're going to connect uh that's where a regular date night helps or other things 
Um, I think number three is important, taking life stress out in each other. Because a lot of times when you have stress at work, when you have stress it yeah. uh, from something someone has done to you, you take it out on the people closest to you because you know they're going to be there, right? Yep. You know, that's it. But that's not fair. Yep. And and so doing that one, I think, is a huge one. And then number six, harboring a grudge. Mm. Um, this is where people like me who struggle in, in – um, uh, you know, in, te- in conflict who have yep. some, you know, I'm a people, please, you know, I'm yep. doing much better with that, but I think my natural bent is to avoid conflict. Well, within yes. a marriage, when you avoid conflict, uh, then little, little things end up weeks or months mm-hmm. later being big things yeah. and you harbor a grudge and it's unfair because, uh, maybe some, let's use an example. Maybe something's happened between Carrie and I. It's a little thing, but it hurts my feelings or makes me angry. Mm. And I don't say anything to her about it. And then for the next week, I'm going, why hasn't she apologized? Well, the answer is because she has no idea that she I was has mad no about idea. that in the first yeah, place. Yeah. <laughs> That's so real. Yeah. And that, speaking that sounds crazy, but we all do this all, all the time. Yeah. Why, you know, you think to Kevin, why isn't Kevin like whatever asked me about this or mm-hmm. said this? Why I say this about Carrie. And the answer becomes they have no idea. And then that no grudge turns into much bigger thing yeah. than it ever was. So number six is a big deal. One That's or two, what's so one or good. two that uh, that you struggle with here? Yeah, I just want to add on to that too, is I do feel like early on in our marriage, it took me a minute to realize like, oh, Kevin can't read my mind. <laughs> oh, like that seems so obvious. But to talk about those things, I'll just throw out one here. I would say holding on to the past, um, mm. I, especially early on in our marriage, I think it was... One of those things where I was still even holding on to like, um, like guys that I dated, like I was still holding on to uh, letters that they had sent me or like mm. momentum, mo- mementos from our relationship, not because I had feelings for them, but it was like that total cutting off of the past was really hard for me to do. And I remember one time feeling really convicted about it. Mm. So I actually, I wanted to like burn everything, but instead I just stuck it in the garbage and sent it away as like a, because I wanted to really be like, no, I'm in this marriage now. Like that past doesn't matter. I am not connected Mm. to those old relationships. I'm with Kevin and all of my efforts going to be towards him. And so I did, I almost had a ceremony, like wrapped it all up, said goodbye and, and moved on. And I I think sometimes we have to do that. We have to create space for our the marriage that we have to be the marriage that we're pouring into and clinging to and, and totally let go of, of any old connections to the past, physical, emotional, spiritual, et cetera. That's a good word. Yep. Well, thank you, Deborah Faleda, for that. That's a really, really helpful uh, conversation about relationships. Coming up next, we are joined once again by Christy, Anthony, and Hannah We Hunt from SOS International. We've been hearing from them this month about how we can partner with SOS to fight against human trafficking for women and girls around the world. You can actually give online at 1160hope.com or you can give to SOS by calling 866-343-4717. Be sure to stick around for my conversation with Hannah and Christy when we return. You're listening to The Common Good on AM 1160. Hope for your life. Hey, everybody. Welcome back to The Common Good. My name is Aubrey Sampson. I have some very special guests today. Hannah Weehunt and Christy Anthony from SOS International, two women that are on the ground with an organization that is uh, fighting against human trafficking around the world, also providing life-giving resources to children, to women in need. And we are thrilled that they're here with us today just to talk about the work that SOS is doing. And one of the things that we haven't actually talked about yet is how SOS International got started. So I know this is a a family business in a sense. And so I would love to hear from the two of you. uh, What got SOS off the ground? It's a long story, but I'm going to give you the short version. Um, (laughs) So we started honestly with leadership training and development. Um, We started doing that years and years ago. Over the course of doing that, we ran into a lot of leaders who were just facing huge needs in their community, who didn't have food, water, education for their own families and for the families in their communities. And so through that, it was just, it's kind of that process of of stepping into 
the right space and holding that tension and being like, okay, if, if we can figure out education for one child, couldn't you figure out education for two or three children or for a whole community and really beginning to create tools that could be used in some of these more underdeveloped communities to step in and really address these big problems. And so it actually started with water mm. um, because water is just a huge need. And we had a couple of leaders that we were working with that were being cut off from all local water sources. And it was like a life or death situation. Wow. And so we stepped in and started the first water well, almost 30 years ago now. And that very quickly led into these other models of food, water, rescue, and community development. Um, But it it just started from that place of, okay, we can figure this out for one. And if you can figure it out for one, why can't you figure it out for two? And if you can figure it out for two, why not figure it out for 10,000? Because at some point it's just numbers. And if a solution works, it works. So it obviously did not ramp up that quickly, (laughs) but these are simple solutions. It's nothing groundbreaking that we do, but you just meet a need and you feed a person and and then you watch as it just has compounding effects. And so here we sit almost 30 years later and this year we actually had a, or I'm sorry, last year we actually had our banner year of feeding. We fed over 8 million meals last year. And Come so on. Um, it's just really awesome. cool to see, you know, to be there when we fed that first meal and now to know that, okay, last year that was 8 million. Like that's a big jump, but wow. it just happens over time. Oh, I love that. Think about that. One meal multiplied to eight. Did you just say eight million? I mean, did, I hope our listeners heard Over that. Over eight million Over last eight year. Over eight million yeah. meals last year. By the way, in the middle of a pandemic, a global pandemic. So that is absolutely incredible. Mm-hmm. I want to invite you to be a part of the rescue and restoration of human trafficking victims through SOS International. During this month of rescue, we're praying that our listeners will provide 80 months of loving care to women and children who are making the choice to leave their lives of bondage and slavery. Your gift of $150 covers one month of their care, safe shelter, food, medical attention, counseling, restoration ministry, education, skills training. Basically, you will be giving them a chance at a whole new life. Amazing to think how much impact your gift will have in the lives of women and children who have been trapped in the slavery of the global sex trade. And if you give right now, a generous matching partner will double whatever you provide to give twice as much love and care to these women. I hope that encourages you to be extra generous. Please give your gift now by calling 866-343-4717. Again, that's 866-343-4717. Or if it's more convenient, you can also give by clicking the SOS banner at 1160hope.com. I know some of the things that you do at SOS, you do prevention, you do rescue, you do rehabilitation. And I think sometimes when we think about anti-human trafficking efforts, what we picture is someone is going in and raiding a space, right? And and like kind of pulling girls out. But I know you take a more relational approach that's actually a choice-driven approach and an empowering approach. I would love to hear how SOS actually does some of the rescue work that you do. Yeah. So if you could imagine like for yourself, you're a 12 year old and a trafficker comes and takes you and locks you in a cage. And honestly, the, the grooming process is they're trying to break your will down. Mm. That is the point of the first three to five years a girl is trafficked. Mm. They're trying to break your will down. Mm. So they're locking you in a cage. You're being raped up to 40 times a day. Mm. You're being deprived of food. I mean, I know girls that had, I'm going to get, can I be just honest with you? Can please, we have a conversation? That? Honestly, do. I know a girl yeah. who she got stung with cigarettes like a man paid to pour boiling water on her legs. Mm. The entire point of the first three to five years is to break that girl's will, Mm. to just completely demolish whatever that little girl is inside. Mm. And so when you've received that kind of abuse, if someone comes into that situation and pulls you out, we would think, no, we're here to help you. They think, oh my gosh, what is going to happen to me now? Mm. If that's what happened first, what am I being set up for now? I can't survive. Mm -hmm. And so we've seen um, the model of raids be really unsuccessful. Girls go back or girls commit suicide. Mm. There's just not that transformation that happens in their life. So we come alongside and we start developing relationship with them. And we start telling them, you have value. You are more than this. Mm. There is something in you. There are dreams and hopes in you. And we want to be your friend. We want to walk with you through this. And so we start to slowly build trust. And um, that looks like feeding outreaches. That looks like going in and cleaning their floors, Mm. doing their laundry, taking care of children. 
after school programs, night care shelters. It looks like just kind of being in there, being the community that rallies around them. And then slowly but surely, we develop a trust and relationship and we tell them, we have a place for you if you would like to come. And then as soon as a girl decides, as soon as her will is activated again, Mm -hmm. and she says, I want to come out, we take him out and we take him to the rehab center. And the success of a girl choosing to partner in her freedom is unimaginable. I mean, the transformation that happens. We have girls that are yeah. so restored that they actually go back in and take out other other girls. Wow. Because they say, Amen. I know this path. I've, I've received this restoration. Yeah. It's possible for you. So that relational approach, that partnering in your freedom, that activating your will, it's critical for true transformation to happen. Mm. And, um, you know, I am guessing that that process alone takes quite a while to build the relational rapport, to build the trust. And so I realize I'm jumping ahead a little bit in asking this question. But let's say you you do have a a girl who has made the choice. Okay, I want to move into one of your homes. I want to take you up on this offer. I want to choose to get out. What does it look like at that point? How does SOS partner with her to begin rebuilding her life? I, I can't imagine how difficult that would be. Honestly, the first two weeks are fairly critical. Um, and if you're talking about from like a programmatic stance, what happens is we actually bring them out to safety because when a girl makes that choice, you need to move them that day. It okay. is not, I'm going home to pack in tomorrow. It is, all right, you're out, okay. right? Because you're, you're, Traffickers are sophisticated. That girl will be moved, right? So you have to get her out to safety and freedom. But really, we like for the first two weeks to be a little bit of a a time for her to almost detox a little bit, right? To step back. So in that first two weeks, you know, she's going to work with counselors. We actually have a woman that was a former trafficking victim herself who came out to freedom and she became so passionate about bringing freedom to others that she's gone on to get her master's in counseling. And so she's a counselor and her specialty is actually, she's the one that they work with. Mm, And so they'll come into her office and for the first two weeks, they're just working with her. She's telling her story. We're helping them learn to tell their story if they're ready, whatever they're ready to share. And basically you're going through a kind of a two week time of a medical assessment, kind of getting a gauge on where they're at with their mental health, hearing their story, documenting their story, seeing, you know, do they have family? What's the status with their family? Is their family at a place that they could take them back? Are they looking for them? So the first two weeks are really kind of building out the caseload for that girl and then developing that individualized path. So one of the things that a lot of donors ask us is like, how long does this take? Right? Because... It's a good question. Right. And the truth is, is that no two paths look the same Mm. because I'm not going to push a fast track healing agenda on a girl that says, okay, you need to step in and do A, B, C, and D. No, we're talking about a life that's been devastated Mm. and creating that space for healing to Mm. come in. And so it's a slow process, especially at the beginning. Once she comes out of that first two weeks, we get them into community because honestly, isolation is a huge, huge issue in trafficking. I actually had coffee with a trafficking, former trafficking victim this morning, and she was talking to me about the role that isolation plays in all of it. And, and the thing is, is if a girl gets isolated, it is so dangerous for her Mm. and Honestly, it's the isolation that a lot of time leads them to interact with traffickers. Mm. <clears throat> so we really try and surround them with community, with girls who can stand by, side by side with them, who can share their story and can walk that freedom journey with them. Hannah and Christy, I'm so grateful that you're here with us today. I, I want to, when we come back, I want to actually talk about how the two of you find the wherewithal and the strength to keep doing this work. Because I imagine the things you're seeing, even things we've, we've just heard about are really, really difficult. During this month of rescue, we're praying that our listeners will provide 80 months of loving care to women and children who are making the choice to leave their lives of bondage and slavery. Your gift of $150 covers one month of their care, safe shelter, food, medical attention, counseling, restoration ministry, education, skills training. Basically, you will be giving them a chance at a whole new life. Amazing to think how much impact your gift will have in the lives of women and children who have been trapped in the slavery of the global sex trade. And if you give right now, a generous matching partner will double whatever you provide to give twice as much love and care to these women. I hope that encourages you to be extra generous. Please give your gift now by calling 866-343-4717. Again, that's 866-343-4717. 
Or if it's more convenient, you can also give by clicking the SOS banner at 1160hope.com. Hey, everybody. Welcome back to The Common Good. My name is Aubrey Sampson alongside my co-host, Brian Front. Thanks so much for being here with us today. Um, Brian, uh, you and I talk very often and openly about how we are pastors. We've been in church ministry a long time, and Mm -hmm. we know over the past few years, especially pastors have been especially under-encouraged, if not deeply discouraged. I was thinking about, Brian, you know, are there... Is there anything in particular a church member or um, someone you've ministered to has done something to encourage you and how that felt? Yeah, that's a couple come to mind. One, as an entire church, a couple of years ago, I was given a sabbatical, which oh, is that's amazing. unbelievable. Yes. And it's a real gift. Not everybody understood it, but it's mm-hmm. a real gift. Uh, a couple of things come to mind. First of all is I don't know if people understand how much – uh, the encouragement it is when you get the random email that's just like it yeah. does not even about like, hey, that sermon was great. OK, mm-hmm. like that's nice to hear. But it's more about like, hey, I see what you're doing. Like, I, I appreciate you. I'm glad, you know, those types of things. Yeah, uh, I do remember one time we were on a, in a congregational meeting and this was six or seven years ago, probably so a ways ago. And I was up taking questions and I just, you know, hey, open it up. And people are asking really good questions like, wh- why do we do this? Or when are we doing this? Or what? And, you know, those they were it was not stressful at all. But it's always about like, can you answer this for us? Can you answer this? And and one mm-hmm. uh, younger woman got up and I was like, OK, you know, hey, what's your question? And she just goes, I'm just wondering how you and Dave, uh, she, Dave was my other pastor at that point. So we we're yeah. doing church together. She just goes, she just gets up and she goes, I'm just wondering how you and Dave are doing. Mm, wow. And I remember being like not knowing how to answer it in the moment, but it being a moment of just uh, feeling really cared for, like in a congregational meeting, somebody's going, can you just share how you're doing? Mm. And I remember that being like, I, that was the question I was not expecting and mm. being able just to open up and be like, here's how. And so that it sounds mm. small, but it was really affirming and yeah. caring. Like, yeah. oh, okay. This isn't just about what's our programming. What's this? Mm-hmm. What are we doing? But in a congregational meeting going, how are you doing? So that's yeah. one that came to mind. How about you? That's so that's so good. You know, I, I was actually thinking about something that happened last week, and this is going to sound a little funny, but um, so, so our, as you know, uh, Illinois is now a mask optional state yes. and we've been meeting in a public facility. And so we've been following their mask mandates. Well, now we no longer have mask mandates. So masks are optional at Renewal Church. And that has been a delight for a lot of people. That has been a source of frustration for a lot of people because we've been a very mask-friendly church for a long time. And so there have been a couple people who have expressed some frustration about that. But then there was somebody last week who wanted uh, the church to continue with mask mandates. And Kevin called them and just said, like, look, I know this is hard, but we just can't. Like, this isn't our building. We're not going to do it. It's not the way forward. But this person was so encouraging and kind in Mm. their feelings about this. Like, they wanted to see a different um, result. But they were so respectful and thoughtful, even inviting Kevin and my family over for lunch after. And then took the time to say, Pastor, thank you so much for even calling me. I know, you know, we didn't come like to the same like terms at the end, but the fact that you took the time to call me means so much to me. I've been in churches before where you can't even get a hold of the pastor. Mm. And, you know, it it was this thing where like in the past, especially over the past two years, you've gotten a lot of those emails that have just been hurtful and painful and, and have not been in a context of like, oh, but I also see everything else you're doing. I also see how hard this is. And that person just came forward with disagreement, but so much respect. It was what we've talked about, like civil discourse and kindness. Yeah. And I, I really, really appreciated that. That's um, cool. Yeah. And, you know, my my husband opened up on Sunday about his own weariness. And he was like, look, I know you are tired. And he talked about, look, the past several months for him have been losing his mom, having mm. back surgery, leading in a pandemic. He made a joke. He was like, I don't know if you know, but I'm not like a virologist or whatever that word is. So like, so like you're sending me these emails. I don't know. And everyone laughed and it was really good. But, you know, he was honoring, I think, his own 
his own weariness while honoring the church's weariness and just kind of reminded everybody, look, like we're here for Jesus. Like, let's get Mm. back to who we're supposed to be. And I was so proud of him. And um, so I feel like I'm not trying to toot my own horn, but I publicly shared that on my own social media because I wanted to honor my husband and encourage him because I know how hard it's been for him over the past two mm-hmm. years. And I would say every pastor we know is, is feeling that and needs some extra encouragement. Um, okay, so here's why, Brian, I wanted to ask you about this. Over at churchleaders.com, uh, Dan White wrote something about uh, the un- talked about pain of a pastor Mm. recovering from burnout. He opens up about his own burnout, how he was grumpy, how he wasn't sleeping, how he was extremely tired. And he was actually on vacation in that. And he realized that like he was totally burnout. And he says a lot of it was from, um, he actually, their church foundation, like literally collapsed, literally not in the, actually we mean it like his, it didn't figuratively collapse. The church foundation of their building actually collapsed. (laughs) Uh, He had a small group leader who he had to confront because they were teaching about polyamorous relationships. He had a woman accost him after a Sunday sermon for not being there for her when she needed counseling, you know, blazing letters sent from the Uh, right side of the church saying he's too liberal, blazing letters from the left side of the church saying he's too conservative. And he he just began to talk about how he had a, a almost a breakdown. At one point, he was sitting across from his wife and his hands were shaking Mm. because he was so weary and wounded, but was unwilling to admit I'm hurting as much as I'm hurting. Right. And, and interestingly, he, he ended up going to the doctor had a series of tests from a neurologist and the doctor said that he had an active tremor listen to this Brian attributed to cumulative traumatic stress disorder hmm. from 25 years of ministry it had taken such a toll on his body that he now had this disorder yeah. and he goes yeah. on to talk about the the power of retreat the power of sabbath the power about encouragement and how there has to be a place where pastors can talk about some of the pain that they're experiencing. And then he goes on to talk about healing. Apparently he has a um, kind of a strategic, you know, pathway and a retreat center for pastors, which sounds amazing, Brian, you and I need to go. It's in Puerto Rico. We'll bring our spouses spouses and go. But (laughs) anyway, I, I guess I'm bringing that up to just honor that like pastors have been in pain for a while That was true before the pandemic, but especially so in the pandemic. And I wonder as church folks, what we can do to, to think about that and encourage our pastors as much as they're encouraging us. Yeah. It's it's a heartbreaking story. We all have some, uh, you know, realm of that story as pastors in ministry. And just to be bluntly honest, for me, I know I'm in a bad spot when I wake up anxious, Mm, Uh, when you've got that feeling in the pit of your stomach, like immediately upon waking up. And that happens to me at times. And you're like, okay, that can't be good. Like that can't be good. I had another Mm -hmm. pastor friend of mine Mm -hmm. uh, who remained nameless who said every time there was a season where every time he drove into the church parking lot, he literally had a physical reaction. Wow. And so this is real stuff. And what I would encourage people is uh, uh, pastors who are listening. I know we have a bunch of pastors who listen is just be honest about what you're feeling Mm -hmm. and get the help you need to Mm -hmm. get a Sabbath, get some time away, get some hobbies, get some counseling, whatever Mm -hmm. else it might be, because it's not just going to go away. Yeah. Um, And, you know, yeah. Can God heal you through prayer? Absolutely. But that's not, it's not necessarily going to happen. And so I I would encourage that for everybody else. Just try to be um, understanding. Mm -hmm of the various streams of opinions and responsibilities and stuff. Just try to be, it's like what your husband said, like, I'm not a virologist. So therefore I'm going to make stupid decisions during COVID. I'm not this. I don't know. I don't know what to do in this situation. And you just cut some grace and and, and yeah. have some grace instead yeah. of sending that email, instead of sending this, yeah. uh, just going, Hey, how are you doing? And so that's how I would do it. But if you're a pastor out there, be honest about what you're feeling and and take the steps you need to take. Don't let your pride get in the way. Uh, that's a great word for us, Brian. Thank you. Let me end on one more thing, kind of a funny note. On Sunday in Kevin's sermon, he was reading Ephesians, talking about how Jesus is the head of the church. And he was like, so take it up with Jesus. Stop taking it up with me. It's actually pretty entertaining. Well, thanks everybody for joining us today. We'll be back tomorrow from 4 to 6 p.m. 
for Brian Fromm. I'm Aubrey Sampson, and you've been listening to The Common Good on AM 1160, Hope for Your Life. Three-star general, Michael J. Flynn, head of the Pentagon Intelligence Agency, knew all the government's dirty secrets. He was one of the most respected generals in the military. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He understood its funding. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. The explosive new documentary, Flynn, deliver the truth, whatever the cost, and covers the facts behind this scandal. Flynn told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. I find out the worst enemy that I'm going to face in my life is right here in America. They took my assessment and they wanted me to change it. I was like, I'm not changing it. They had to get rid of Flynn. With in-depth interviews, archival footage, and never-before-seen personal record to the man behind the headlines. I just felt like I was drowning. Flynn. Deliver the truth, whatever the cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to salemnow.com. salemnow.com.